What a joy together with the body of Christ today, and we continue. This is our fourth summer going through the Psalms. So fourth summer through the Psalms, that's really kind of hard to believe. It is our habit here at Woodlawn Baptist to take books of the Bible and to preach through those books. We believe that God has revealed himself to us, his people, through his word. And if we want to know who God is, then we must give ourselves to the reading, teaching, and preaching of the Word of God, and so that's what we do. And one of my joys over the course of the last three summers, now the fourth summer in preaching through the Psalms, is our singing a setting of these Psalms, for in doing so, we are reminded that the way in which ancient Israel used these Psalms were in times of praise. As we think about worship or praise, often we think about that action in connection to some type of emotion. Mostly we think of that worship expression in terms of an emotion of excitement, or, or when we think about praise, we think of that in terms of excitement. But as we think about this text today, this is a psalm that is an individual lament. You think about this in terms of an individual lament, yet in the context of ancient Israel, this was a hymn to which the entirety of ancient Israel themselves, as the gathered congregation, would have sung, they would have reflected upon. As we think about life, this psalm takes us on a journey of life. Oftentimes, we like to think about our own journeys of life, and those journeys we like to filter through those times of great celebration, those moments of great excitement. We filter that through uh, the birth of our children. We filter that through a marriage. We filter that through a job promotion. We filter that through the celebration of our children in various stages of life. But the reality of this psalm, Psalm 39, the text of Scripture reminds us that there are many expressions in life that are not joyful. There are expressions of life that are filled with intense moments or weeks or months or sometimes years of great sadness. In the context of this psalm, the psalmist reminds us that his sadness is directly connected to his sin. So it raises the question, are all of life's troubles directly connected to my sin? Your sin? This is not a question to which the text of scripture itself hasn't asked, or a question to which the text of scripture itself hasn't answered. You might remember in our time together in the Gospel of John, in John chapter nine, Jesus, uh, John chapter nine, the story begins with an interaction with Jesus and a man that was born blind. And you might remember that interaction when they ask of Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, 
It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's also an answer that is given to us in the context of the Psalms themselves. While Psalm 39 is a very clear individual lament due to some sin that the psalmist has committed, we can turn to Psalm 44, for example, which we'll be to in just a few weeks. And there we can see this community lament as the nation of Israel herself laments the weightiness of her situation And as she laments the weightiness of the situation, she does so with great confidence that her current situation is not because of sin. Psalm 44, verse nine, but you, God, have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples, All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. But listen at verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our hearts has not, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. As we reflect upon this text of scripture today, as we recount the steps, the experiences, the emotions of our own lives, I want to say from the very beginning, that not every act of calamity in our lives can be pointed directly to a willful sin of our own hearts. Yet friends, we must acknowledge that every calamity in life is indeed due to the sinfulness of humanity. This is the story of Genesis chapter three. While I would like to stand before you this morning and say to you, if you're not a believer, I plead with you to trust in Christ. And if you will trust in Christ and rest your life upon the promises of the word of God, everything in your life will be just wonderful. You'll have riches, you'll have poverty, you'll have incredible health. The days of your life will be long. But friends, that is a false gospel that will send your soul 
to hell, separated from God if you believe. That is not the story of Christianity. But in our desperation, the joy of this text, friend, is it doesn't matter the depth of our sorrow. It doesn't matter the reason for our grief. We have a good and gracious God who forgives our, our sins and restores the joy of our salvation to us. And it's to that God that we turn in hope. Hope, faith, and trust. Notice this text here in Psalm 39. The psalmist reminds us when our sin has brought about God's discipline. When our sin has brought about God's discipline in our lives, God brings us to a place. Listen to this. God brings us to a place where we recognize our frailty and acknowledge His sovereignty. When our sin has brought about God's discipline in our lives. God brings us to a place where we recognize our frailty and acknowledge His sovereignty. Look how the psalmist explains this eternal truth beginning in verses one through three. Here in verses one through three, the psalmist acknowledges potentially David, maybe David. We could for sure point to a number of well-known sins in the life of David that would have for sure brought him to a place where God's chastening, God's discipline was indeed heavy upon his life. But whether this is a psalm of David or a, a different psalmist, the truth still remains. The psalmist acknowledges the discipline of God and as he acknowledges this discipline of God, he acknowledges the anguish it has brought about in his life. Look at verse one. I said, I will guard my ways. I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me, and I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Here, in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist is acknowledging his, the discipline of God in his life. God has brought him to a place where whatever is taking place, we don't know if there's some type of physical element that has gripped the heart of the psalmist. I tend to think from the reading of this text of scripture that what is taking place is his conscience is burning hot within his, and his soul. He is grieved by the depravity of his sin and God is using, the spirit of God is using that conscience to bring about a sense of guilt in his own life where he is willing to acknowledge his sin before God. And so the psalmist here in verses one through three is simply saying to us, Lord, 
I get it. I'm aware of it. God, I am experiencing your discipline in my, in my life in such a way that the psalmist casts this in terms of his ability to speak. You see how he says it? I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muscle, muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. He's acknowledging that the weight of his sin upon him has caused him to be in a position where he is completely, totally silent before the Lord. Now it's interesting here for sure in verse two, he says, I'm gonna guard, I'm gonna remain completely silent, if you will, as though I have a muzzle over my mouth, particularly as I am seated among the wicked, as I find myself living among the wicked. Perhaps one of the ways in which the Lord is bringing about a sense of chastisement, of discipline in the psalmist's life is through that of his enemies. We see that testimony throughout the text of Scripture as at various times Israel herself, does she not, finds herself under incredible judgment and derision for her enemies, and it's due completely to her sin. This is the narrative of the book of Judges, for example. Israel will walk faithfully with the Lord. She'll begin to sin. The Lord sends a foreign nation to judge. Israel falls under judgment. She begins to cry out to the Lord, and the Lord sends a judge, a deliverer, to come to the nation of Israel. Perhaps in the context of this psalm, that's exactly what is taking place, but that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is the psalmist understands even in this moment of discipline, it matters how he speaks about God. Can we be honest this morning? It's very difficult. It's exceedingly hard and some of you in the context of this church family have experienced it in greater depths of sorrow than I personally have. Yet I still acknowledge that in moments of great sorrow, it's hard at times to think well about God. When we're suffering, when we're experiencing pain, it's hard to want to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, Paul would write. It's hard at moments to even find ourselves even in the position where we're willing to sing before the Lord. The psalmist is acknowledging that it matters as he thinks about his desperate situation. It matters how he speaks about God, particularly in the presence of the enemies. It reminds me of what Paul said in Philippians chapter two, a lesson that I have had to learn in my own life and a lesson that I'm continually having to learn every day. Paul in Philippians chapter two pins these words. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And listen to what he says here in verses 17 and 18. Even though 
I am being poured out as a drink offering. Paul is saying, even though my life is at an end, even though I am facing imminent death, even though I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul, like the psalmist, understands, friends, it matters how we think and talk about God and life. The psalmist, even under great despair due to his own sin, we'll see that here in a few moments, a few moments down in verses seven and eight, even then, the psalmist wants to be careful about how he speaks concerning his situation in God. Otherwise, the psalmist runs the risk of not bringing further shame upon himself, he brings further risk of speaking ill of this great God and King to whom he has pledged his life. David understands the discipline of God in his life. He acknowledges God's discipline in his life He acknowledges this through a poetic device of saying, I can do nothing. I am completely silent. I am guarding my mouth. Look at verse two. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. The psalmist paints a picture As the moment and the days go by, there seems to be no balm in Gilead, if you will. There seems to be no forgiveness. There seems to be no healing. And so look how he exclaims in verse 3, my heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. This isn't the only place in the context of the of Scripture where we see this idea of a fire burning heavy within someone's soul. Think about Jeremiah. As Jeremiah reflected on the Word of God, he said, it's like a fire burning in my soul. I will not be quiet, Jeremiah says. The psalmist here is reflecting upon his own sin and he, as he reflects upon that sin and he understands God's discipline in his life. He says, it's like a fire in my heart. It's a fire in my bones. I have got to confess my sin. Where? Verse four. Oh, Lord. You see it? The psalmist understands and acknowledges that the right place for us to confess our frailty, the right place for us to confess our sin is not to the world and not necessarily to one another, even though that is true. It is ultimately to the Lord. Look how David expresses human frailty here in verses four through six. 
O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. And notice the next three stanzas began with this word, surely. Surely. All mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. See what the psalmist is acknowledging before God? His frailty. He's acknowledging the opposite of what pride does in our hearts. Pride places us in a position of sin, let's just be honest, that causes a lot of calamity in our own hearts and lives. The psalmist is doing rightly the opposite of what pride does. Humility. God bringing us to a point where we understand who we are and who he is brings about a sense of confession in our hearts and our lives where we rightly understand who we are before a holy, righteous, good God. David is essentially, the psalmist here is essentially acknowledging his desperate need for God. He's acknowledging, Lord, I can do nothing without you. He does so in a reflection on what human life really is. He does so in a way the preacher does at the very beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes. How does a preacher reflect on life at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Oh Lord, cause me, make me, work in me, God, to bring me to the point where I understand that I am nothing but, as Paul would write, a cracked clay pot. This is the psalmist's disposition before God as he reflects upon his own sin. The first place that he goes as he thinks about his sin is to the Lord. Oh, Lord, make me. As you think about your life this morning, as you think about the sin in your own life, to whom have you been confessing that sin? Have you found it more, have you found it easier to complain and fuss and bemoan a current situation in which you might find yourself? Or have you found in God a resting place, a source of strength and comfort 
The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it, and they are saved. This is what David is acknowledging here. This is what the psalmist is expressing here. Do you live your life with the same awareness of your own soul? See, friends, it's absolutely impossible for us to rightly know God if we don't rightly understand the sinfulness of our own heart. That our sinfulness completely, totally alienates and separates us from a holy, good, righteous God. The psalmist here rightly understands who he is before this holy God. Look what he says. Lord, I'm measuring my life in the span of a hand breath. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't walk around talking about hand breaths. And maybe some of you who are uh, familiar with horses, I remember growing up on a farm, they talked about a horse. That horse is 15 hands. What? Just tell me he's five feet, six feet. He's 17 hands. The psalmist is using a, a, a small measure. So you think about a hand breath, you think about literally the size of, of your palm, which is somewhere between two and a half and, and four inches for a child through an average adult. So the psalmist is, is thinking about life and comparing it to a, to a very small measure the size of our hands. Let's be honest. When we're young, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 25, maybe even into 30. I'll extend it to 30. In many ways, we feel like we're invincible. Nothing can happen to me. I've got the rest of my life ahead of me. I can do anything. I can overcome everything. Nothing can stop me. And then all of a sudden we get to like 40 and weird things start happening in our thought process. We start realizing we don't know anything. And then I start sounding like my dad to my kids. You don't know anything. The psalmist is acknowledging as he reflects on life the opposite of what most of us think of when we think of life. And I'm glad to be honest this morning. As I think about life, it's a joy, it's a blessing, it's a privilege, it's filled with great joys. It's a joy to spend time with your family, it's a joy to experience this gathering, but I understand I can also say that having experienced very little calamity in the context of my own life. And you know what the psalmist is reminding us here, friends? If you don't position yourself now in a right understanding of who you are before a holy, righteous God, then when calamity comes knocking at your door, it has the chance to cause you to turn away from God and not push you toward God. So friend, might I make a plea with you today? If you're not in calamity at the moment, settle your heart and your mind and soul upon the truth of this text, and may it settle you for the day of calamity and understanding that our lives are frail 
only sustained by the graciousness of God at every single breath. David has been brought to that point in his life where he understands the frailty of human life. And he says it with rapidity at the very end of verse 5 and into verse 6. Surely, 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 surely all mankind stand as as mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they they are in turmoil. Man heaps upon wealth and does not know who will gather. We've all been scared of that shadow from time to time, but does that shadow last very long? No. In God's divine economy of time, does my life last long? Does your life last long? No. In God's discipline, has brought the psalmist to the place where he's saying, okay, God, I get it. I understand. And now he's ready to make a confession. Look what the psalmist does here in verses 7 through 13. The psalmist acknowledges God's sovereignty and asks for forgiveness. The psalmist acknowledges God's sovereignty and asks for forgiveness. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I did not open my mouth, for it is to you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely, here's that word again, all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Verse seven. The psalmist hopes exclusively in the Lord. He trusts solely in God. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? What shall I do? I will hope and trust exclusively upon you. This was the cry This was the testimony. This was the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, if God would not spare his own son for calamity due to sin, do not think that God will spare your life from calamity 
do to sin. Jesus' path was a path that would lead him to the cross, not because of Jesus' sin, but because of your sin. Not because of Christ's sin, but because of Israel's sin. Not because of Jesus' sin, but because of your child's sin. Not because of Jesus' sin, but because of your neighbor's sin. Not because of Jesus' sin, but because of your sin and my sin. And as Jesus reflected upon the calamity of the cross, Jesus cried out, Lord, if there be another way, if you would so graciously let this cup pass from before me, Lord, if there's some other way to accomplish salvation than the calamity of my own life, God, please let it happen. And yet, Jesus walked with such faithfulness before God, he could say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. The testimony of the psalmist in this passage is the testimony that Jesus has given us when we face intense moments in our hearts and in our lives. The psalmist sense of desperation drove him to acknowledge even in the midst of that desperation, God is completely, totally good and sovereign and in control even when I don't understand in what way. This was a testimony of the cry of the heart of Habakkuk on behalf of the nation of Israel, was it not? At the very beginning of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk cried out to the Lord and leveled charges against God, against the very character, against the very words of God. And yet God looks upon the desperate situation of the nation of Israel, and the response to God to them is, the righteous shall live by faith. See, friends, God has even designed the calamity in our hearts not to push us away from Christ, but to pull us toward Christ. I don't understand that. I don't comprehend it. And at times, I wish God had designed it differently. Yet, my heart, because of the work of Christ and the word of God, is compelled to exclaim, with David, my hope is exclusively in you, God. Are you there this morning, friend? Is that the disposition of your heart today? If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, this expression of faith cannot grip your heart and characterize your life. But because of the work of Christ, you can join the psalmist and the people of God in the context of this room in exclaiming this truth. My hope is exclusively in you, God, if by faith you would trust 
and God's provision for your life and my life, the person of Jesus. And for those of us who are believers, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, would you settle in your heart and in your mind now, at this very moment, the sovereignty of God and his complete, total, absolute control, so that if not now, tomorrow, so so that if not now, next week, so that if not now, five years from now, when calamity comes knocking at your door, you too might exclaim with the psalmist, my hope is totally in you. Look at the next verse, verse eight. The psalmist asks for sin, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. It is true, friends. Scripture reveals it. That there are moments or situations in our hearts, our lives, in which calamity comes knocking due to a very specific sin in our own life. But please understand this. Neither I nor you stand in the position of God to make a declaration against any other person that that which they are experiencing in life is a direct result of God's chastisement due to a specific sin in their lives. How do we know in the context of this passage of Scripture that the psalmist is acknowledging that that which he experiences is indeed due to a very specific sin? Because the Word of God has revealed it to us. God has told us. So it causes you and me to approach life with a sense of humility. In a sense, as I noted earlier, that it very well could be something taking place in my life due to a direct sin I have committed, a willful disregard to the Word of God, but yet all times living in my life that indeed all calamity is a result of sin. Have you confessed your sin before God? The Bible tells us in 1 John, if you confess your sin to the Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. David expresses complete total hope in God. Verse 8, David acknowledges, the psalmist acknowledges his sin before God and he seeks forgiveness. And look what he does in verses 9 through 11. He rightly understands in this context God's discipline in his life. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you, God, discipline a man with rebukes of sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. The psalmist is reflecting that which we learn from Proverbs chapter 3. God disciplines those he loves. Or, as the writer of Hebrews would tell us in Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 6 through verse 8, God disciplines those he loves, and if you're not experiencing the disciplining hand of God in your life at all, the probability is you're not a child of God. And so, friend... 
why we don't always like the disciplining, the, the disciplining hand of God in our lives, may we also this morning pause and give God thanks for his chastisement in our life. For in that chastisement, we are affirmed. You are a child of God. David acknowledges his sin. David acknowledges the discipline of God in his life. And then notice what he does here at the very end. He asks God for complete, total deliverance. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your, pe- your peace from my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. David asked that the Lord would indeed restore to him, if you will, the joy of his salvation. David says, Lord, I'm a sinner. Restore me. Renew me. Revive me. David asked of the Lord what each of us as believers should continually be asking of the Lord, that we might walk continually, rightly before God. But see, friends, this psalm also reminds us that God has indeed already done what is necessary for you and me to walk rightly with him. This is the testimony of Paul in the book of Ephesians when he writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Friends, those of you who are believers this morning, we can rejoice in the Lord regardless of our circumstances. Why? Because God has so graciously given to you and me the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this text asks the question of our hearts, is Jesus, is God truly enough for you? See, friends, when we come to that point in our heart and our lives where we can acknowledge with the psalmist in verse 7, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is completely, totally, solely in you. It's there. It's at that point. It's at that moment. It's at that place where God is calling you and me to live our lives. Are you trusting God at this moment? Are you hoping solely in God at this moment? Regardless of the circumstances that you might find yourself in today, or yesterday, or tomorrow. This text reminds you and me that our right disposition before God is one of complete, total control. Trust in Christ. 
Would you join me and the psalmist in confessing our frailty and God's sovereignty? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the graciousness of your word to us. We thank you that through your word, Lord, you have given to us all that we need for understanding what it means to walk rightly with you. And now, Lord, as we respond and reflect this morning to the preaching of your word, we would ask in the quietness of this moment and the stillness of this moment that you would impress the truths of these words upon our hearts and our minds. As you reflect upon God's word this morning, maybe God through this sermon has revealed a very specific sin in your own life with which you're dealing at this very moment. And you know, and maybe nobody else knows, maybe your wife doesn't know, maybe your spouse doesn't know, maybe your best friend is unaware But you know at this moment that sin has so gripped your heart that it's raining down calamity in your life. Would you humble yourself before God this morning and confess your frailty? Confess your sinfulness? Maybe you're here today, friend, and you've never trusted in Christ. And God in his mercy has revealed to you through his word today that you can't have this settled sense of hope apart from Christ in your life. We would plead with you today to trust in Christ, to repent of your sins, to believe in Jesus, for the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him, From the dead, you shall be saved. We would plead with you today to trust in Christ and be saved. Are you living your life at the present in a settled position that God is always good? Maybe you're struggling with that this morning. Would you ask the Lord to strengthen that conviction in your life at this moment? Would you ask him to deepen your faith? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of of God's word. As we sing, as we respond together, maybe you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. Myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. As we sing, this would be an opportunity for you to come to one of us, and we'll be glad to share with you what it means to trust in Christ. Or friend, you can simply turn to someone seated next to you in the context of this room, for there are plenty of Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people seated next to you that would be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Maybe you'd just like for one of us to pray with you. That God indeed would deepen this conviction in your heart. That your faith in Christ might be increased. That your hope in God might grow. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. 
Or thirdly, maybe God has placed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we, as your people, respond to you now in faith, we pray that our response might be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.